calling in will be as important in the 21st century to the human rights movement as nonviolence was to the civil rights movement in the 20th century. A statement of our values based on how we do the work. I am deeply concerned that in this age of social media and this age of instant gratification, that people are trying to do the right thing the wrong way. They, they think that, the, that they're supposed to call each other out, put each other, shame people, or bully them for wrong thinking and wrong speech. And I don't agree with that. From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, on health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. In a time when we need collective solutions to increasingly serious challenges to our democracy, we need open dialogue more than ever. Yet we're living in a time when being called out or canceled can ruin careers and even lives. With the collateral damage of closing off necessary dialogue and shutting down a multiplicity of voices that may be part of the solution. If you're a feminist, my guest today, Loretta J. Ross, should need no introduction. But if you don't know her, I hope today is the start of a long relationship of acquaintance with her work. Loretta, a leader in the human rights movement, is perhaps best known for co-coining the term reproductive justice, the fundamental tenets of which are a woman's right to have a child, not have a child, and should she have children, to be able to raise them in safety. Reproductive justice is women's health through a human rights lens. She's been a fierce and formidable women's health rights activist for over four decades. Currently a professor at Smith College in the Program for the Study of Women and Gender, where she teaches courses on white supremacy, human rights, and calling in the calling out culture, Loretta was the national coordinator of the sister song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective from 2005 to 2012, national co-director of the 2004 March for Women's Lives in Washington, D.C., the largest protest march in U.S. history at that time. She founded the National Center for Human Rights Education in Atlanta, Georgia, launched the Women of Color Program for the National Organization of Women, and was the National Program Director of the National Black Women's Health Project. One of the first African-American women to direct a rape crisis center, Loretta was the third executive director of the DC Rape Crisis Center. She's co-written three books on reproductive justice, including the very readable book, Reproductive Justice, co-authored with Ricky Solinger, which I feel is critical reading for every person with a female body, or every person actually, and has a forthcoming book called Calling in the Calling Out Culture. I've followed Loretta's work for over 30 years. First hearing her name back in the days when I was an apprentice midwife to do a Afe, a Black midwifery health collective, which at that time 
was housed in the offices of the National Black Women's Health Project in Atlanta, a profound time in my own formation of a greater understanding of the impact of racism, genderism, and other isms on women's health. I truly consider her one of my all-time heroes. Her work has literally shaped my life and work, and I believe she's a beacon of light for all of us. In fact, if you've ever been to a dinner party where someone asked you if you could have dinner with anyone, like your top three people, she's been on my top three list for longer than I can count. And so I can't believe we're having this conversation and maybe even dinner is ahead of us one of these days. More recently, Loretta has turned her mighty attention, intelligence, and voice to issues of call out and cancel culture emphasizing that divides do not solve the problems we're facing. I had the opportunity to take her Smith College course on cancel culture online last year, and it's expanded my understanding of how we can connect and influence rather than silence to create greater understanding and create change. And just a few months after attending a graduation at her alma mater, Hampshire College, where she has been mentoring younger artists, my youngest daughter, Naomi, called me gushing. Mom, you would not believe how powerful and wise the commencement speaker was, Loretta J. Ross. I laughed, nodded my head, and marveled at how Loretta's words reach across generations. Today, Loretta gives us an introduction to what she has called call-in culture. I'm here to listen and learn, too. It's with greatest pleasure that I welcome Loretta J. Ross to On Health. Loretta, thank you beyond thank you for being here today and for being the fierce and tender leader and human being that you are. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Oh my gosh, it's beyond a pleasure. So let's just jump right in if that's okay with you. Um, you've described yourself as a radical, progressive, Black feminist and activist. And I would love to hear what shaped you into the human being that you are now? Oh, I don't know many, how many hours you have. because I, oh, I could stay on with you forever. I had but. many influences. I was fortunate enough to be born in Southern Texas and had great parents who did everything they could for me. I was one of eight kids and I was the child number six. So mom had a lot of experience by the time I came along. And even though she was suffering from PTSD, from having been a childhood sexual abuse survivor, she never made us doubt her love for us, even as she was working through her trauma. Dad was an archetypical provider. He wanted to take care of his family, work two or three jobs to keep us housed and stuff. We weren't poor, but we didn't always have food in the refrigerator either. So it was somewhere between there. So that was the biggest influence. I remember when my mom sent me off to college, she said that she admired me. She kind of surprised me because me and mom had a contentious relationship growing up. And she started to say, I like you because you don't let success go to your head. And I interrupted her because I always run off at my mouth. And she said, wait a moment, shut up. Let me finish. She said, I like you because you don't let success go to your head. But most importantly, you don't let failure go to your heart. And my mother had piqued my resilience before I had. And she knew that I had faced many obstacles. 
and she knew that they didn't ever beat me down. One of the biggest obstacles was childhood sexual abuse myself. I was impregnated by a married cousin when I was 14 years old. And so I had a baby out of incest when I was 15. And yet I went on to graduate high school, had my parents support me raising that child because I was a baby raising a baby. And really, those are the kinds of early childhood memories that I have that shaped me. As a matter of fact, when I went on to co-create the theory of reproductive justice, I couldn't help but remember that I didn't have a choice over if and when I'd have sex or if and when I had a baby. And so that influenced the whole theory of me wanting to say every human being has the human right to decide if and when they'll get pregnant and how to raise their children in safe and healthy environments once they decide to parent. And so I keep that little scared 14-year-old inside of me at all times. Tell me how that little scared 14-year-old talks to you or shows up in, in your life and work now. Well, sometimes she shows up and makes me braver. And sometimes she shows up and makes me scared. So it's not, it's like luck, you know, it's not always good. But anyway, I stay in touch with her probably involuntarily, when I doubt that I could do something. And then when I realize what I've already been through and that I'm still here, she makes me braver because I know that I can do things that I did not suspect I had the strength to do. But then there are times when she makes me feel very afraid because it is easy and frequent to get re-stimulated by past trauma. And so sometimes I feel extreme doubt that I'll survive something or that I'll conquer something or that I will maintain my sense of joy in life when I really feel down. And so the 14 year old is still there, but sometimes she's there in a very encouraging way and then sometimes she's there. Maybe she's there to tell me it's okay to be afraid and you're going to do it anyway. I love that. That's amazing. When you went off to college, did you know that reproductive justice work was, and the term obviously didn't exist until you put it on the map or co-put it on the map. Did you know you were going to go into human rights, activism, women's health work? No, I didn't when I went off to college. I am, by most definitions, an accidental feminist because I had no real political consciousness when I went off to college at 16. I majored in chemistry and physics. I actually thought that I was going to end up in a laboratory somewhere uh, doing experiments with inorganic compounds. I had no idea. But I became pregnant my first year of college at age 16. And since I already had one child, 
I did not want another. And fortunately for me, I went to Howard University in Washington, D.C., and D.C. legalized abortion three years before Roe v. Wade, and that was 1970. Fortunately, the year I needed one. And so I was able to have a perfectly safe abortion at the Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C. My only obstacle wasn't financial because my law school boyfriend was more than happy to pay for it, or legal. My obstacle was familial because mom did not approve of abortion. And so she wouldn't sign the permission slip for me to get one. And since I was under 18, I needed parental consent. And she and I fought over that for a long time until my sister secretly forged her signature on the permission slip so that I could go on and have one. And that got my attention because that was the second time I've been pregnant. The first time was with involuntary sex. The second time was with voluntary sex. And then I was mad because I seemed like I was fertile Myrtle. <laughs> I didn't have sex that many times to end up with two pregnancies. And so I accepted implantation of the Dalcon Shield, which was a, an IUD that was widely available in the early 1970s because I thought that would be the best way to prevent more unintended pregnancies. Well, it did prevent unintended pregnancies, but it also was designed with the defect in it. And it led to the sterilization of more than 700,000 women, and I was one of them. And so my reproductive career was very brief. And that's when it finally got my attention. I keep saying my plumbing got my attention while my head was telling me to be a chemist. And the sterilization after the Dalton Shield was my wake-up call to start working on issues of violence against women, issues of reproductive rights and justice, all of those things. But I still didn't actually do feminist work in, in the early 70s. I actually got involved in tenant organizing first because I returned home one day after signing a lease to my apartment in Adams, Oregon. Maybe about three months after that, I returned home and there was an eviction notice on my door because they were threatening to turn my apartment complex into condominium. And we had 90 days to get out, regardless of the status of our leases. And so we, we called this impromptu meeting of the tenants in the building. I think the laundry room was the only place large enough for us all to meet in. So we're standing around the washing machines and dryers trying to decide what to do because everybody in the building had gotten the same notice. I decided to keep notes because I wanted to find out more. And simply because I had kept the notes I was appointed to be the president of this emerging tenant association <laughs> only because I had the note. Anyway, that led to me joining a group called the Citywide Housing Coalition, which worked against gentrification and worked to pass DC's first rent control bill. 
1974. And then the other thing that was very prominent in my early years was the anti-apartheid movement because it, D.C. was a strong side of resistance to apartheid at the time. And so it was very difficult to do any kind of political work without encountering anti-apartheid activists. And so I joined in that work. It was at a meeting of the Citywide Housing Coalition at some church, I think it was St. Philip's Church in Washington, D.C., that I met a, another activist named Nakenji Ture. And Nakenji at the time was the executive director or national coordinator, I think she called it, of the DC Rape Crisis Center. And Nakenji invited me to come volunteer at the Rape Crisis Center. And I remember telling Nakenji, I don't want to go work with those white women. What are you talking about? <laughs> and Nakenji literally, looked me dead in, our, dead in the eye and said, would I lead you wrong? And because McKenzie had been a member of the Black Panther Party, I was totally intimidated by her because I thought like, those were the serious revolutions. I felt like a dilettante, you know, compared to them. And so I ended up volunteering at the Ray Crisis Center and then succeeded her as executive director. So that was my formal introduction to feminism because I knew what had happened to me was wrong, but I had not changed from being a personal feminist to a professional one until I got that job at the Rape Crisis Center. And even then, I didn't use the F word. I did not call myself a feminist because my perception of feminism was that it was white women, and I didn't necessarily define it the way that they defined it. And so I was doing a lot of women's rights work, working against violence against women and on a lot of other issues. But it wasn't until 1985 that I started using the word feminism to describe myself, which is you know, six years, seven years into doing work in violence against women. So we all get to decide when we're going to find out which word best describes our politics. How did you bridge the gap from the administrative and human work you were doing in a local sphere to becoming a nationally outspoken person? How did you have the confidence, but also the know-how to start writing, publishing, speaking, and transforming outside of a more local space? Well, I believe that happened through my work at the DC Rape Crisis Center. Also, I guess my housing work as well, because I wrote a piece about gentrification, one of my earliest pieces that I cannot find a copy of. But the DC Rape Crisis Center was the first one in the country. And so we were constantly in conversation with other cities and even other countries that were starting rape crisis centers and domestic violence shelters. That's the first DV shelter happened a few months after we started the rape crisis center. And we hosted the meetings of 
national or emerging national organizations like the National Coalition Against Sexual Assault has some meetings at our office. The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence had some meetings at our office. So I think that's when I found my national voice because I was working with women from all over the country. What was unique about the D.C. Rape Crisis Center, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary, November 3rd, 2022, is that it was started by, I believe, six white women. And yet, although they were all working class white women themselves, they made a commitment that when they got some funding to hire staff and go from a volunteer staff hotline to a full-fledged center, that they would hire Black women from the community, because at the time, D.C. was close to 80% African-American. And so because of that, the first four executive directors of the center were Black, and I was his third. And that ended up creating this, this mini hotbed of Black feminist activity in Washington that also had national implications. It was a very important golden age of Black feminism, if you know we know it at the time. A Black feminist bookstore was opened up called Sister Space, and there was a Black feminist newspaper that was being published by another woman. And so it was really special to be in Washington in the 1970s and 80s as a Black feminist. And you asked about my influences that brings to mind that because I was in D.C., I was able to meet with and work with a lot of older Black women, too, who had been in politics and been in the movement. And so they also had a profound influence on me, even though I was really mouthy. And thought I knew everything as a young woman. They never gave up on it, suffered for me. <laughs> and they often unwillingly mentored me. They didn't necessarily like me because I had these budding dreadlocks popping out over my head and they didn't know what that was. But I didn't present as a respectable person in their eyes. But they, they saw something in me that they nurtured. And so they were definitely an influence on me as well. And now you nurture so many people as an educator. It's a profound intergenerational sharing and culture preserving that you're doing. It's so interesting to hear the lineage of your story. Thank you so much for sharing. And thank you for sharing about your 14-year-old self too, and your vulnerability and your power from that. So. I can only imagine that right now your head is just exploding with what's happening with Roe versus Wade. I mean, it's not surprising if we look at the trajectory of the last 30 years of overturning of culture through the judicial system by the more conservative right. How are you reacting and responding and integrating what's going on at this moment? Well, I'm actually surprised that the Supreme Court overreached that way. Because I halfway expected them to keep whittling away at Rome, but not a complete overturning of it. 
because that just provides ammunition to their opponents to mobilize both women who they need for the midterm elections and young people Mm -hmm. who they need for the midterm elections. So I have to confess, I'm frankly surprised with the complete overturning of Roe. I thought it was just going to be that incrementalism that we've grown accustomed to. That's interesting. Yeah, it really has put abortion as a word and as a mobilizing factor so front and center that I feel even at personal liberty as a physician and a public speaker to just be so front and center about it right now in a whole new way. Exactly. And and in the 2020 elections, a lot of elections were decided by white suburban women and young people coming out to vote for Biden instead of Trump. And so I'm just surprised that they would risk that. Now, obviously, the Supreme Court is not Mitch McConnell, but Mitch McConnell is responsible for many of them being on the Supreme Court. So I just expected them to maybe not go so far as to overturn Roe, or at least consider putting the Dobbs decision in the fall docket and not the summer one. Because announcing and overturning a row after the midterms would have been a safer bet for them. So you continue to be a major voice and will always be, I know, in reproductive justice. And also something shifted for you in the last couple of few years where you have focused your lens more acutely on call out and cancel culture. What made the shift for you? And and also, can you define how you think about call out and cancel culture? You've defined, I've heard, you know, heard you talk about a culture of unforgivability, policing. And to me, I see it also as a culture of bullying and emotional violence. So can you talk about why you've shifted your lens and talk about this punitive culture where weaponized knowledge and ideologies are happening and there's policing of words and shaming? and silencing. I've been increasingly concerned with the thought that how we do the work is as important as the work that we do. If we do the work in a way that violates people's human rights, then we're undermining the very human rights movement that we claim to be building. And so I think calling in will be as important in the 21st century to the human rights movement as nonviolence was to the civil rights movement in the 20th century, a statement of our values based on how we do the work. I am deeply concerned that in this age of social media, in this age of instant gratification, that people are trying to do the right thing the wrong way. They they think that that they're supposed to call each other out, shame people, or bully them for wrong thinking and wrong speech. And I don't agree with that. Now, I understand why they're doing it. And there's a lot of reasons to talk about. But I think the chief reason they do it as part of the human rights movement is that's what we've done. The human rights movement calls out government, calls out corporations, calls out individuals 
who violate people's human rights. But what these activists today don't understand is that we use that tactic as a last resort, not the first resort. And so many people don't try talking to people first, don't offer people the benefit of the doubt, don't know how to listen with grace to people who have other opinions than them, really think that they're supposed to organize and discipline everybody into thinking all the same way. And that's the way you build a movement. And so I think that people deserve an opportunity to learn that there's a more effective way to build movement. My biggest fear also is that we underestimate the nature of the threat that we're facing. Democracy has not been this imperiled since the Civil War. And the United States is still trying to decide whether it's going to be a country devoted to white supremacy or a country uh, uh, of freedom and justice. And so we're at this continuation of the same civil war. And the question becomes whether or not enough people care about the weaknesses, the precarity of our democracy in order to actively do something about it. in any way that it's even just fundamental to how we're raising our children, how we're educating our children, that we are on some level a punitive culture or a shame and blame oriented culture that is giving rise to these adult behaviors. And sometimes I wonder too, if people feel so powerless against bigger political forces. People have so much pent up anger and pain and frustration for very real and and good reasons. And those can be culturally based. They can be religiously basic based on any of the binaries that people are attacked under or grouped into that are false and damaging. Do you think it's sometimes this pent up rage and frustration and people feel like they can't do anything about the government or the, you know, the man or whatever. So they go after more vulnerable targets. People go after more vulnerable targets because we're taught to abuse our power. I think it's very familiar to punch down on more vulnerable people. And we love to think that we're punching up against people who are abusing their power over others, against people who refuse to be held accountable against people who have a lot of influence and they misuse that influence. But generally speaking, we are trained to punch down on more vulnerable people or not to intervene when the punching down takes place, which is why the bully culture exists. There are, you know, not that there's a large number of bullies, there's a large number of people who are bystanders when bullying happen and are afraid to intervene for fear that the bullying is going to happen to them next. And so there is something cultural about how we abuse and treat each other. I think it's based on our fierce individualism, where we 
try to make people think that they're in it by themselves. And if they don't take care of themselves, then possibly no one else will take care of them. This is very foreign to other philosophical traditions, like the philosophy of Mbutu from Africa is one of interdependence as opposed to individualism. I didn't know a lot about Mbutu until Archbishop Desmond Tutu started talking a lot about it. And he talked about how if, if someone commits a crime under an Mbutu system, the community holds them accountable for it, but instead of punishing them, exiling them, kicking them out of the village, for example, they would have kind of like a tribunal. And in that tribunal, they would weigh not only what the person did that violated the, the community standards, but how, how else did they contribute to the community? Is this where the truth and reconciliation model comes from? That's exactly what the TRC is based on. Theoretically, it didn't work perfectly, but that's exactly what it's based on. So it gives people an opportunity who have been victimized, victims, et cetera, to speak their truth. And for the violators to speak their truth as well. And so, yes, it's very much based on the Mbutu concept. But the other thing that Mbutu emphasizes is no individual is allowed to keep their skills to themselves for their own profit and benefit. So if you're a great shoemaker, for example, you share that with the entire community and the person who makes good knives shares that with the entire community. And so you have an obligation to share your skills with the rest of the community, but the community collectively participates in helping you get those skills, whether it's sending a child off to college so that they can come back and be a doctor for the community, those kinds of things. And so it, it's a philosophical tradition that's based on interdependence. And its basic saying is, I am because we are. I cannot define myself outside of the context of my community, who are my people, who are the people that I care for and who care for me, which I think is quite different. I'm really curious. So there's cancel culture and call out happening kind of on both sides across the aisle politically. But a major phenomenon that I've witnessed is something that you've called horizontal canceling or humorously, visually, although sad, a circular firing squad. And I know that you've shared that this is really concerning for you, particularly in how it may impact the effectiveness of the reproductive justice movement. And I wonder if you can talk about this phenomenon. How is it showing up? What concerns you about it? What are the risks of it? And what do we do about it? Well, one obvious thing that has happened to me that I'm concerned about in the wake of the overturning of Roe is how quickly people who want to defend abortion access started criticizing each other's strategies for doing so. When in fact, all of the strategies are going to be necessary and 
each person gets to choose which, which strategy works best for their lived experiences, for them, instead of constantly criticizing other people's experiences. I wrote an article in Yes Magazine about how some Black women were claiming that one reason that Roe was overturned was because the pro-choice movement was too white. I criticize the pro-choice movement for being too white too. That's not the point. I agree with that point, but I don't agree with their cause and effect status statement because the Republicans do what they do because of who they are, not because of what we do. And so it's a, it, it turned into a victim blaming kind of analysis where let's blame the white women whose wounds are the ones that they're fighting over for not protecting their own wounds fiercely enough, basically. I was like, how does that work for you in your head? Because I don't think the abortion fight or the population control fight or however you want to term it is about brown and black babies being born, they kill the ones that we have. I actually think it is about fighting over the wounds of white women. And so I think it's totally appropriate that white women be in on the front lines for this fight. Now that doesn't mean that black and brown women and indigenous women will not be collateral damage and suffer disproportionately from the overturning of Roe because we frankly are more vulnerable than white women. But this was never about increasing the number of black, brown, or indigenous babies in the United States. Anybody paying attention knows that if you don't understand white supremacy, you don't understand reproductive politics as it's always been in this country. Because the genocide against indigenous people was designed to make them reproductively disappear. You had the forced breeding of the kidnapped Africans to build wealth. And then you had the demonization of that same fertility among Black people after the Civil War. And not to mention what happens to immigrants who are accused of having anchor babies so that they can stay in the country. I mean, all of this stuff is a feature of white supremacist ideology. And so I didn't like the infighting that erupted after the overturning of Roe. I think that no one generation, no one identity uh, has all the answers that we need. We need all of those answers. We need all of the people coming together to deal with this multi-pronged assault on us, because it's not just about abortion rights, of course, it's about voting rights and civil rights and LGBT rights and, you know, militarism and the war economy. It's about a lot of things that are very much intersectional and interconnected. And you can focus on one thing, like the abortion rights movement, but that doesn't mean you're oblivious to all the other things that have an impact on the work that you do, because you do it as part of the women's rights wing of the human rights movement. But there's also the racial justice wing and the environmental justice wing and the disability rights wing and all of that. 
And so again, one of my concerns about the falling out culture is that we have to do our work in such a way that it doesn't create contradictions for the other people in our movement as they focus on different things. So I would never venture to speak to the experience of anyone else, and particularly as a white woman, Black women's experience. My understanding of history through your work, reproductive justice, the treatment of enslaved women, the treatment of women after slavery through a medical lens. I mean, there's so many ways that white supremacy has shaped the reproductive experience of Black women in this country and Black families in this country. And white women too, by the way. Yes. Or what is the role or importance of reaching across, like, how do I say it? Recognizing the intrinsic experience that has been unique to Black and to Black and Brown women and honoring that and white supremacy and also all of us, regardless of skin tone and complexion, working together against what are much bigger threats to to all of us. There's something about the Black feminist consciousness that I can't explain, but I certainly appreciate. In the 1970s, the Combahee River Collective gave us the concept of identity politics, where you work within your identity groups to find out who you are, and then you go beyond your identity groups to find out who you're going to work in solidarity with. But the fact that we even use the phrase identity politics now is attributed to that Black feminist collective. In the 1990s, Kimberly Crenshaw gave us the concept of intersectionality, actually starting in the 80s, which is a universalist theory, feminist theory, Black feminist theory, that has gone worldwide, that now we understand the deep connections between both oppression and liberation is a paradigm shift in how we see ourselves and the movements we belong to. In the 90s, we, we, we created reproductive justice, which transformed how we talk about reproductive politics, not only in the United States, but worldwide as well. So there's something unique about the Black feminist standpoint that creates universalist theory that then can be applicable to everybody. And I like that about the way our minds work, not necessarily, I don't like having to be so oppressed to get there. <laughs> but it does look like black girl magic when you look at it historically. It's pretty and beautiful. How transformative it feels when we use the concepts of intersectionality or identity politics or reproductive justice and appreciate their origins, but also their power. Do you feel those are terms that? could be used broadly by feminists, reproductive health activists, reproductive justice activists, by all of us in a way that is not appropriating? Or do you feel like those terms are best exclusively used by Black feminists in a Black feminist reproductive justice context? No, I don't believe that. Matter of fact, that whole perception kind of pisses me off because it almost carries in it the inherent assumption that Black women cannot create theory that's univer that is universalist and applies to everybody. 
And I don't believe that. I think that we do have a particular standpoint that from which our theories originate, but they are widely applicable. As a matter of fact, I don't know anybody to whom they don't apply. Mm-hmm. When you think of identity politics, it applies to everybody. When you think of intersectionality, it applies to everybody. And reproductive justice as a human rights framework applies to everybody. So I'm not quite sure who's left out. Each individual standpoint will allow them to adjust and adapt the theory to fit their own lived circumstances. For example, once reproductive justice was created, indigenous women adapted it to include issues of sovereignty that us not being indigenous would not use. When immigrant women embraced RJ or reproductive justice, they started talking and beefing up immigrant rights, something that doesn't concern those of us who don't have to worry about immigration and citizenship because we were born here, that kind of thing. When the LGBT movement embraced reproductive justice, they raised a fourth tenet, and that is bodily autonomy, sexual pleasure, and gender identity. So one of the things I appreciate about reproductive justice is its expansiveness, its capacity for holding everybody, and its adaptability. So no, I don't think just because it was created by Black women that it only should apply to Black women. That's a very reductionist view of what could be a very powerful paradigm. I really appreciate your saying this. When I spent time, which was many years, in Duafe, and then after Duafe was no longer Duafe, but was the Mama Saran and you know Mama Nasra, who passed recently, as as you also know, there was always a consciousness of pouring libations, of honoring the ancestors, of honoring where the work came from, rather than just appropriating it. And I've been hesitant in some ways to use certain terms because I don't want to appropriate what has originated powerfully from a community that is often not given credit for many powerful influences in our culture. So I really appreciate your sharing that, that expansive view. Well, one of the things that addresses the appropriation question is acknowledging its origin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not that women for centuries haven't braided their hair, but if you're going to do cornrows, acknowledge where they came from and do your cornrows if that's what you want to do. You know, it, appropriation is, it only occurs when it's stolen and not appreciated in terms of where it came from, when you want to invisibilize the originators so that you can claim that you've done something new and unique. You use a term that I heard on an interview, which made me laugh out loud, which was the woking dead. That's my <laughs> girlfriend, Dazon Dixon Jallo. She's the one that uh, coined that phrase. Tell me about that and what that means to you and how you see that happening in our culture. What it means, what is it causing? Woking dead are people who believe in purity politics. So they go around lambasting everybody who doesn't have their particular point of view in total sync with them, like they're building a cult or something like that. 
And so some people say they make the the perfect, the enemy of the good kind of thing, because they don't really know how to do organizing or build coalitions because they're so committed to criticizing and belittling others who don't perfectly align with their point of view. And so she calls them the woking dead. And I thought that was a wonderful way. It's really good. Of of describing people, again, who think they're doing the right thing, but they don't have an ability to attract people to them who don't behave in cult-like manner. You talk about lived experience. And I think probably for me, where I first understood that term was through your work. And lived experience is a very important part of the narrative and way that I have done midwifery, the way that I do medicine. And I've heard you say that lived experience also can become a barrier if we feel like our lived experience is, is sort of the way and that it isn't the only lens through which to see life and that we need to expand our sphere of evidence and understanding. So can you talk about how we honor and validate and really rely on lived experience as part of our intuitive or our way in the world while also expanding our sphere of evidence and understanding? What does that look like? I can't remember the name of the writer who wrote this phrase that said, what you've been through is only part of your resume. (laughs) You really have to do some studying and some learning and some conversation with others who've been through other stuff to consider yourself an expert on any topic. And so some people think that their lived experience is all they need to know when they don't even understand fully what they've been through, because that requires collective knowledge, not just your individual knowledge. And so I tend to caution people from devaluing lived experiences because those do matter, but also from overvaluing them as if that's all you need to know in order to create social change. I never want people to feel like what they've been through is not acknowledged, but a lot of the trauma that we've been through makes us see things through a trauma lens. And you can't change the conditions that created your trauma if you only see the world through a trauma lens. It's not a liberatory lens. And part of this trauma lens is informing some of the call out and cancel that we're seeing, for example, on college campuses. There's a lot of triggers and trigger warnings and I know that in your class, because I attended it last year, you basically are like, I'm not giving any trigger warnings. You're not so much if you don't like it, lump it. But but I, I feel like what you're doing is trying to get us to push past the reactivity of our own inner story to move past the triggers in some way to hear more. And I'm I'm so curious about the feedback you're getting from students too on and your colleagues. So can you talk about cancel culture triggers this intense new demand on campuses and in workplaces for safety and also the very real need to have safer spaces too. Well, usually within the first day of class, either online or in person, I try to ask 
the students to consider that I can either protect you from the truth or teach you about the truth, but I can't do both of those things at the same time. Wow. Wow. Let's just put, can you repeat that? That is so strong. It's very simple. I can either protect you from the truth or teach you about it. But those two things are at odds with each other. Now I can teach you about it in a loving and gentle way, or I can protect you from it in a loving and gentle way, but I cannot keep you brainwashed and for, you know, and, and enlightened at the same time. That just doesn't work for me. My brain's too small to handle both of those concepts at the same time. And so that's why I explain to the people that I'm doing popular education with that I, I don't use trigger warning. First of all, I don't even know what your triggers are. I know what my triggers are, but I don't know what your triggers are. And I'm not going to dumb down the material or so insulated from any kind of conflict that I, I, I can't, you know, it all gets reduced to unintelligible mediocrity. I just can't do that. And I choose not to do that. And so I like to think that we're stronger than we think we are. I know as a rape and incest survivor and a survivor of racial violence, I mean, I've been through a lot of stuff. You don't even want to prepare resumes. But I've learned through that that I'm stronger than I thought I was. Now, that doesn't mean everybody will have that same experience. And so my classes aren't for everybody. If somebody's still in a place where they're wounds are real raw and still bleeding and making them, making it a challenge for them to get up every day and deal with life, then you don't come take my courses because all that's going to do is exacerbate the wounds without necessarily leading you to that healing place you need to, to take care of yourself. That's like calling in. You can't call in people if you if you haven't done a self-assessment and know that you're in a healed enough space to call somebody in. And because if you do it that way, without that self-knowledge, you're probably going to bleed all over there because you're still bleeding. And so the feedback I get is generally very positive because I've used my privilege as an elder to say stuff that younger professors wish they could say, and they don't have the security that I have. I'm tenured, so I can get away with a lot of stuff that the younger professors who are more uh, academically vulnerable can't say. Because they're afraid to be canceled if they say it. Right, right. And I don't have any problem wading into controversial topics because I like the debate of different Mm -hmm. ideas. And so I'm rarely going to stay safe when I can generate a debate, make people think about things in a deeper way, learn things from these young people. I love learning from my students. Oh, my God. Every time they write something totally precious, I ask them for permission to quote it because it's just some of the brightest minds are in my classes. And I love that. What would be an example of something that you could say? that somebody else may feel like they have to walk on eggshells or tiptoe around and never say it because they're afraid to get canceled? I've waited a bit 
into this controversy over the use of the word woman, which of course is being contested by what I call the extreme wing of the trans movement, where that extreme wing is defining the use of the word woman as harm to them. And I frankly believe that if you can't define the object of the harm, then you de-victimize them. And so you can't then talk about remedies for the harm because there's no victims and there's no perpetrate kind of thing. You and Ricky do a beautiful job in reproductive justice defining and discussing this issue where you have a beautiful phrase. I actually have it highlighted. I, I highlight and dog ear my book. My <laughs> grandmother was a librarian. I'm sure she rolls in her grave every single day. But you talk about that nobody who is not typically binary or doesn't define themselves in a binary way should be invisible. And yet by erasing the word woman, how we have traditionally used it, we also run the risk of erasure of the unique violences against a certain group that have been defined that way. Exactly. I'm concerned that when we go too far with our attempts to be inclusive, we embrace a theoretical concept of gender neutrality as if your gender identity really doesn't matter and it shouldn't matter. And that feels too eerily reminiscent of colorblindness. I was just thinking that exact thing. Because it's kind of like the theory, if I don't notice race, then, then there's no racism around kind of thing. And I'm like, no, that doesn't work because all that does is invisibilize the victims of it and then make the people who practice racism unaccountable. And I never want to let the people who practice active misogyny be off the hook that way. Because <laughs> otherwise, how will we ever change it? But I could see how that would be a very vulnerable thing to talk about in the world that we live in. At this particular historical moment. So you are teaching a class on Colin culture. You're writing or have written a book, which I can't wait to get my hands on, frankly. Can we bring it home, bring this conversation home, or at least this first conversation we have? I hope to have many with you and just listen to you for many more years of my life. Circles of influence. So this first time I heard you speak of it was in the course that I did online, which I believe is still going. People can still join that course, correct? I've got another conversation on uh, July 26th. And okay. you can sign up for it on my website under my name. So in this conversation, you really drive deeply, deeply, deeply into why and how those of us in our, let's say, 90% sphere of influence where we have the same shorthand, you and I, many of us are in the same 90% circle, even though many people might not realize they're in that same circle, can influence all the way out to this 10% of people. So 80% difference where we share almost no common values by talking and communicating and listening and coming to understandings in concentric circles. And this is 
seems to me part of the heart of call-in. Can you, can you talk about that? Okay. I believe that many of us have the power to influence a lot more people if we understand who we are and who they are and not work on these assumptions that because people don't perfectly align with us, they're impervious to our influence and we should be impervious to theirs. As I teach it, we're all in these, like you say, concentric circles. To me, the circle I belong to is called the 90% circle, not because we're 90% of the population, but because the people that I can speak to without doing translation are 90%ers. We use the same lexicon. We use the same words and we're perfectly intelligible to each other. Because when I say heteropatriarchy, I don't have to explain it to someone. Or when I say neoliberal capitalism, I don't have to explain it to a 90%er because they know exactly what we're talking about. Okay, so we have this 90% circle where we understand each other's fundamental lexicon and philosophies. And we share a worldview that overlaps with Mm -hmm. each other. Even though I might work on women's rights and someone else might work on environmental justice and someone else on criminal justice reform, we all share a view that things need fixing and it's our job to fix them. <laughs> Outside of us are this, what I call the 70%, uh, 70, 75%. These are people who have a shared worldview that overlaps with ours but they don't have perfect alignment. Meaning that, well, the example that I most use as I use in my classes is that I'm a feminist and I support women's rights. And so does the Girl Scout. (laughs) But they may not bring a truth to defend an abortion clinic. So I wish they would, (laughs) (laughs) but they still believe in girls and women's empowerment. And so that makes them my ally. They're not my opponents just because they don't have the same analysis of heteropatriarchy and feminism that I do. Outside of the 70 percenters or 75 percenters, I see the 50 percenters, and I call them that because they can lean to the left or they can lean to the right. depends on who's influencing them at the time. And those are the people that we best influence, not by paying attention to their words that define them as 50 percenters or so, but we best reach them by speaking to their values. So I may believe as a 90 percenters that we need to defund the police, but when I'm speaking to a 50 percenter, I'm gonna change and ask them, well, how would you define community safety and how would we best achieve it? Because meeting people where they are in the language that they're comfortable with so they have a sense of safety and realize there's more commonality than difference so they might listen to you. Exactly, exactly. Not ignoring their lived experiences in favor of your own because theirs are just as legitimately theirs as yours are. And then, of course, outside of the 50 percenters or what I call the 25 percenters, these are the people who we have so little in common with in terms of a worldview 
that we don't speak the same language. When I say freedom, I think of freedom from ignorance and injustice. And when they say freedom, they mean the right not to wear a mask in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> we may be using the same words, but they mean something totally different mm -hmm. by them. And that means that as a 90 percenter, I don't have the words that could necessarily speak to their worldview because their worldview is so diametrically opposed to my own. It's like me arriving in the middle of them and starting to speak Martian. It <laughs> just wouldn't work. And then outside of the 25%ers or the zero, I call them zero, not as a statement of their character, but because they are openly and willingly part of the white supremacist neo-fascist movement. They are not confused about what they believe in. They're not a 50%er. They are very clear that they have a set of goals, a set of strategies, and a worldview that's about harming others by dominating over them. And so I don't seek to influence them. I seek to overpower them with the coalition that I'm building of 90% or 75% or 50% and a few 25ers if they're willing to have that kind of conversation with me. The way I saw this in practice was in the formation of Sister Song, my Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective that me and 15 other women started in 1977. We were founded by women who were both pro-choice and pro-life, yet it never stopped us from working together because uh, we felt we had much more in common as women of color than we had dividing us. And so I learned that you can work with people even who disagree with you on something as fundamental as abortion rights, but depends on how they disagree with you on abortion rights. For example, all the pro-life women in Sister Saul agreed with this statement that they would not personally have an abortion, but they wouldn't stop somebody else from doing so. Well, that's a pro-life position I can work with. Mm -hmm. There are too many people in our movement who says, anybody who uses the word pro-life, I don't want to work with them, I don't want to talk with them, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I think we need to be less judgmental and furry and definitely be far more strategic. Loretta, thank you so much for dropping so many pearls of wisdom and so much food for thought and for change and action. I have one question that I like to ask my guests. Thank you for taking so much time with this conversation. If you could tell your younger self anything and you can define younger self any way you want, how old would she be and what would you tell her? There's things that I've done that I regret, but even those things that I regret, contributed to my growth. So would I rather have not done those things or had them happen to me? I don't know. I think if I could tell my younger self something, it probably would be to be less afraid of relationships with me. Because I was always an introvert, I still am. And so it is a labor for me to really work on my relationships with people. And I'm, I think because I'm just in the middle of a huge, boisterous family and I was so busy invisibilizing myself, 
<laughs> in the midst of that. So probably I would like myself to develop better relationship skills and more emotional intelligence when I was younger. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm thrilled that you are practically my neighbor. So I look forward to being part of your extended community as you do that and sharing some experiences with you. Thank you so much for being you, for being here and for everything that you bring. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye, Loretta. Thank you everybody for being here today and giving yourself this space to drop in, learn, listen. It's definitely a moment of self-care and growth that we give ourselves when we take time to listen to a podcast, read a book, and grow who we learn from. I hope that Loretta has given you food for thought and for action. Please make sure to go to avivaram.com forward slash 172. That's for episode 172, where you'll find links to Loretta's website and show notes, or head right to lorettajross.com, which is filled with resources, articles, videos, and where you can also sign up to pre-order her forthcoming book. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram, and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time. 